0: All right, we're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 17. How do we know that the Bible is true? How do we know that our English Bible is true? Jesus said that God's Word is truth, John seventeen seventeen and that the Scriptures, we know, uh, are the expression of God's mind. They are the way that God communicates to us, the way that God reveals Himself to us most clearly is through His Word. And we know that the Scriptures are true because the Scriptures claim to be true. Um, Further, we, we also know that the Bible is true because it's unlike any other book ever written. It's a collection of 66 books written by 40 different authors during a period of over 1,500 years in three different languages. But despite its diversity, it actually has one main author, and that is God through His Holy Spirit. And uh, so we'll talk about how there's a unifying theme in the Scripture, that all the Scriptures point to one main theme. But for this week, we want to consider more about how we got our Bible, how we can be confident that our Bible is... Especially we want to consider more our English Bible that that we have a faithful representation of what God actually said and what God actually intended and um, really it doesn 't come down to scientific evidence i 'm going to give you uh, some details as to how the transmission of the text actually happened but but really it doesn 't come down to scientific evidence you know we 're not going to believe based on scientific evidence we could mount up a huge pile of of, of science and all these proofs from the scientific realm that try to say that something is true or not. But really what Jesus said is that no one will believe the message of the gospel if uh, even that an un- unbeliever who is who's, um, resistant to the message of the gospel will even reject a clear expression of God's miracle like in the form of a person rising from the dead, right? Thinking about uh, the rich man and Lazarus. When the rich man wanted someone to go back to his brothers, in Luke, and and um, and Jesus says, you know, or or Abraham, I think, says there, you know, even if they had, even if someone rose from the dead, they still wouldn't believe. So they have Moses and the prophets; they already have the scriptures. Someone who's been exposed to the scriptures, they understand it and are still resistant of it, may still reject all the way until death. Uh, It's not about the scientific evidence. That's the point. Um, It's about believing what has been said. So here's how we can summarize last week's class before we jump into this week's. First, God exists. Everyone knows that He does, Romans chapter 1. Second, God spoke. And the clearest way that He spoke is as He inscripturated His Word for our benefit. That Word is made up of God's Word. It is God's Word. It is from God's mind. And we know that God does not lie because His Word says so. Therefore, we would expect everything in His Word to be true. And we have a responsibility to, to believe it. So, the question really is, do we accept it as truth? And likely, if you're here today and are excited about studying the Scriptures today, you do accept it. Um, we concluded our time last time by looking at the transmission of the Old and New Testament texts. And, and that's really the subject of what we want to continue with this week. Um, When I used to study at the seminary library, I would sit in a room filled with thousands of books. But not one of those books was a manuscript. A manuscript is a handwritten document. With the proliferation of books in our society, it's hard to believe and imagine that only 550 years ago, every single book that had been written was either an autograph, the original, or a manuscript, a handwritten document. And that's because now we have the printing press and we almost... um, Well, we definitely don't read handwritten books anymore. We read the ones that are printed off of a press or a printer or something. Um, so, So prior to... The, the printing press, every document on the face of the earth, whether biblical or not, was produced by hand. And so it's no wonder that we have so many copies of the Bible in handwritten form. And if you want to see some of the original manuscripts, you can go to University of Michigan. They have a Bible exhibit that includes one of the oldest papyrus fragments that exists from the Second Corinthians. And they have a number of others as well when we talk about manuscripts in the Bible, we're referring only to the documents that were copied in the original languages, so Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And there's a whole science of understanding uh, the age of manuscripts. And I don't want to get too technical, but I want to get a little bit technical today because I think it helps us to understand that our English Bible is a faithful representation of of, um, God's original autographs that were that were written um, two thousand years ago and, and before. So that's going to be our focus today. So let's think first. How do, how does how do scholars determine the age of a manuscript uh, of a manuscript? How do they determine? Well, there are a number of ways. First, they look at the material on which the 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 manuscript was written. And so during the inscription of the Bible, people would write on broken pieces of pottery. They would write on sometimes something of value, something that had permanent importance. They wrote on papyrus, parchment, and we'll talk about some of those here in just a second. But notice Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18. Now it shall come about when he, the this person who becomes king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on the scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And they shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. Now, this is long before the kings came along, this is long before Saul and David and so on, but, but Moses says, in the day when your nation does actually have a king, here's the very first thing that they need to do when they come into to uh, power, we could say. And that is that they must write down a copy of the entire, uh, basically the law of Moses at this point was what they would have. Write it all down for themselves and then review it. Now, probably not review the whole thing every day, but, but kind of like how we review the Bible, hopefully every day. That is that we take a portion of it and we read it for ourselves. And that's what the, the kings were supposed to do. Why? So that they could obey it. And and so the point is, is that they would have a handwritten copy of these documents. Now I'll turn to Revelation chapter 20. And notice that even in the last times there will be these handwritten documents. Verse 12 says and I saw the dead the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds and the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire this is the second death the lake of fire and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire so so there is this, this is not talking about the scriptures, but this is talking about those who will make it into the eternal kingdom. And, and again, there's this idea that, that in those days those things would be written down. Now let's talk about some of these paper or these, these uh, documents that they would use or, or um, types of material that were used to write on. First, the papyrus, from the word from which we get paper. It was made from the soft center of the reeds in the Nile River and they were, they were um, cut really thinly and laid down side by side, and, and then they would do another layer right on top of that, cross-section, and they just have this natural glue in them that would just make them stick after they would dry. And then they would take those little sheets, those little square sheets, and they, would, they were about 12 inches high, and they would lay them together and attach them together, glue them together in, um, in a 70-foot roll. Which would make which would be turned into a scroll, and uh, so in fact in the the earl, some of the earliest writings, like the books of Samuel, was written on all one scroll, one seventy foot scroll in the Hebrew language, and then the books of the kings, the books of the chronicles, all written on one scroll, and so um, those who had access to those documents could simply just grab one scroll in order to read it. The other type of material that was used was parchment; it was leather that would come from the skin of of sheep or camel uh, sheep or cattle or goats and um it would be formed into a scroll by sewing a few piece, few pieces of it together of course parchment was going to be much more expensive because it was much more uh difficult to produce but uh but it also preserved the documents um, they they tended to put their most important writings on those parchments second Timothy 4:13 as they had access to them they would they would use Paul says, "You know, bring me the books, but also bring me the parchments. Those are kind of my special." And it sounds like that—that's probably portions of the the scripture. Uh, the other way that scholars determine the the timing of the writing or or the the, the when these things were, were written is by looking at the form uh, in which they were they were put together. So, was it a scroll or was it a codex or a book? Right Around the 2nd century, after Jesus had ascended into the heaven, after all the documents of Scripture were completed, um, people began to take these papyrus and the parchments, and instead of doing a scroll, which makes it kind of hard to get to the spot where you're looking for, they would use a, a book form. They would bind them together on, uh, at the seams and so on, and they would have this, um, this form called Codex. Another way that they determine the age of a manuscript is by looking at its completeness. So, how much of the document do they have? Do they have a fragment, a small portion, like you're going to see on the second page of your handout? Or do they have all, the whole book of First Corinthians or the whole book of Second Corinthians? Um, or do they have the whole of the New Testament? And we have preserved for us at various parts of the world 200 manuscripts that contain all or most of the New Testament. And there are a few manuscripts, again, not originals, but manuscripts that, that contain the whole Bible. The fourth way that they determine the age of manuscripts is by the style of writing. Um, what you'll notice on the, the manuscript you have on the second page of your handout there is that the words have little or no spacing. Right? They just kind of... When when they would write, they would write in all capital letters and they would just do kind of run-on. No spaces between words, no spaces at the end of sentences. And so they would just um, just write... Um, just one letter after another, and the way that they could tell what they were writing is by context. In fact, if you did this, if you just took a paragraph and took out all the spaces, you would still be able to figure out what was being said there, and we have to do this a lot now with Twitter, right? People just, they, when they put their Twitter handles on there, they, sometimes there's really long ones, you got to figure out, okay, where are the spaces at, but but you get good at it after a while, and and same thing was What's true about them? It, it, obviously, the the purpose of that is it helps to preserve space, right? They're trying to write, and and um, sometimes on very expensive materials, and so they wanted to preserve as much space as possible, so they didn't use spaces or punctuation. But in the 10th century, words were instead of more capital letters and, and no spaces, they w- they moved to um, they moved to uh, minuscule writing. Minuscule is more cursive writing, like we would think of and um, it's a little bit prettier to look at than, than what you have here. Um, so, so what scholars can do is when, when they see the type of writing, and I'm not just saying just for Bible, I'm saying for all, anybody who spoke Koine, Koine Greek, this is how they would write. They'd write in all capital letters. If you see something in cursive, then that's probably closer to the 10th century because there was no cursive writing before that. So these factors help scholars, archaeologists, determine when they have a manuscript before them how old it is right they don't don't do carbon dating on it or something like that that's that's pretty arbitrary they they base their understanding of the date of the the document on these types of things is it on papyrus or is it on parchment that'll determine how old it is is it on uh, is it put together in a scroll or a book form a codex is it complete or is it partial is it uncial or is it minuscule all right so that's leading. I'm leading somewhere with this. I realize it's kind of heavy treading right now, um, but but uh, let me let me see if I can um, show you where we're going here. When scholars look at documents, they look at all these manuscripts. Remember, manuscripts are handwritten copies. Uh, when they look at these manuscripts, what you might be surprised to know is that no two biblical manuscripts are exactly alike. There are differences. Now, there are some people who believe that, um, like us, they believe this first part, that the Holy Spirit inspired every single word of the Bible in its original autograph, right? We believe that. But there are other people who actually go a step further and believe something that I don't think is true, and that is that the Holy Spirit actually uh, uh, helped the scribes in their copying, and therefore preserved every single word. Now... Certainly um, God providentially worked through these means that were that were used, and we'll talk a little bit more about that but but if that's true, what I'm saying that, that the Holy Spirit didn't inspire their copies, He only inspired the originals, then that creates potentially a big problem because if you have an original, it could get distorted by copies that are and mistakes that are made. and we'll talk about some of the mistakes that are actually made. The second problem is, that we don't have any portion of the original autograph. So you can go from Genesis all the way till the end of Revelation. We don't have any copies or any of the originals, I should say. All we have is copies. Now, we have some early copies and we'll talk about that here in just a second. So the question that we have to ask is how can we be sure that we actually have the Word of God? And I hope to answer that by the end of the class. But in order to do that, we need to understand how the manuscripts were copied. So let's talk about that here for just a second how were the manuscripts copied okay now we've already talked about what kind of materials they used kind of writing they did but how exactly were they copied because what we're going to find is that some copies are very far away from from what the original are and um so so let's just talk about these two things and i'll try to calm your fears about um us having a a um a flawed copy of the bible in front of us because i don't think we do all right, first, intentional changes. Intentional changes. Now, we don't know of anybody in Scripture who intentionally tried to sabotage the, the copies of Scripture. They took this very seriously. Um, but, but there were intentional changes when scribes, people who just copy for a living or they just do it on the side, they tried to harmonize one section of Scripture with the others. And this happens often in the Gospels. And so they'll remember a passage where Jesus had said this, and he added some more detail where the worm dieth not and and um forget the rest of it, but right and and then if you look at luke's or or Mark's Gospel, he doesn't include that part about the worm dying, not right, and so you have them remembering from wait a second, I remember copying in Luke's, and it was this, and why would Jesus say something different here, and so they intentionally tried to um change it, not to Change the 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 wording of scripture, but in order to make it uh, more clear, we'll talk about that also in a second. All right, but most errors that were made in the manuscripts were unintentional errors. They were errors in sight or errors in hearing. And what you need to know about scribes is that this was a very difficult job. Keep in mind that they were professionals and they were serious about what they were doing. And some of them did it for a living. They actually were paid to make copies of the scripture, but Many of them simply do it, did it as a side job. It was after working a long day, come home, being really tired, under low and often terrible lighting, and they have a copy, or maybe the original, some of them had, and they're trying to make a copy for themselves to, to disseminate among their own people, for example. And so one of the things that they did was they, they, um, they counted every single word on each page. Right? So they had this papyrus, maybe a 12 by 12 inch papyrus sheet, and they counted up maybe 200 words. And we want to make sure when I make this copy, I have exactly that number of words. Because I don't want to miss something that should have been there and so on. Um, but as you can imagine, they were human, and so they would occasionally make mistakes. But just so we're clear, their mistakes only affect a small percentage of our Bible, so that what you have today, um, really the differences in the manuscripts that we actually have are very small. Um, so that it, it really only affects about 1% of, of what you're, you're looking at in your English Bible. Now, the 1% includes things like, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6.11, should it be, some of the manuscripts say, Jesus. Some of the manuscripts say, Jesus Christ. Other manuscripts say Christ Jesus, and then a fourth kind of manuscript says our Jesus Christ. So, is it Jesus? Is it Christ? Is it Jesus Christ? Is it Christ Jesus? So, what I'm saying is, some of these errors are not... A lot of these errors, actually, uh, make up a small percentage of a Bible, and they, they really don't affect the meaning of the text, right? Is it going to change how we view what Paul is trying to say if it says Christ or Christ Jesus? Okay, Christ is just another way to say the Messiah. Now, uh or for example Mark 16:9 through 20, some people believe that Mark 16:9 through 20 is a part of the original manuscript because it was included in older some of the later manuscripts. Other people believe that it was not. And so um so you have questions like that. But So so then you have all these manuscripts. Some of them have differences. And so how do you determine which one is the original? Let's, let's think about that for a second. And, and that's where we come to manuscript experts or textual critics. We have great scholars who, who we could call specialists or professionals who have given their lives to analyzing the various aspects of a given manuscript. So they want to look at what kind of material is being used. What kind of form is it written on? Is it complete or is it incomplete? What kind of style are they using in their, in their handwriting? And, and these people who determine all these things are textual critics, critics so that when they have one family of manuscripts against another family of manuscripts, they want to determine which one is the original, which one has the better reading of the text. And based on these studies, scholars have been able to work their way back as close as possible to the original without having the original. And I wish I had time to go through this um, but we don't. So let me just give you a few foundational rules that these specialists use when they determine the correct reading. So how does a, a specialist determine what is the correct reading? Well, we've already talked about the different kinds of materials that could be used and the different forms and so on. But, but here's another way. Um, here, here's an important principle that they use when they look at these manuscripts. And the first is this. The older manuscript is usually more reliable the older manuscript is usually more reliable. So, look at your chart here that I, I made for you. Number of known Greek manuscripts. So, here's the first century. Notice, the first century would have been when the New Testament was finished, and we have none from there. There. Okay. With no manuscripts, we don't have the autographs. But we do have a few second century manuscripts. Okay, so l- probably during, um, a little bit after the, the disciples, the final disciple had died, John, um, and then in the 3rd, 4th, 5th century, we have a few more. And then notice, once you get to the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th century, you have just thousands and thousands of manuscripts. So how do we know which ones are better? Would it be better to have in the 12th century, see there, 12th century, is it better to have 1,100 manuscripts from the 12th century? How do they know? How would they know if it's from the 12th century, by the way? Remember? Okay, by the material, by the type of writing. If it's written in minuscule, then obviously it's, it can't be from earlier on because they weren't writing, writing in minuscule. Um, if, they're, if they're all writing on parchment, then it's probably not from the first century. Papyrus was earlier. So they group all these together based on the kinds of writing, the, the style that they're written in, and they, they determine when they're written. And, and scholars, no matter what side of the, the, the argument that they're on, they agree that that this is where they come from. Now the question is, which ones are more important? Would we rather have 1,100 from the 12th century, or would we rather have, you know, just 40 or 50 from the 3rd century? And that's really the question that scholars have to determine. And uh, what, what I think makes most sense is that we'd want the ones closer to the original. Why is that? Why would we want older manuscripts, even though we have fewer of them, why would we want older manuscripts rather than a larger collection of of later manuscripts? Jonathan? Right. So as you copy a document more and more, um, there, there's potential for more mistakes or changes, and we want to get closest to the original. That's what we want. The more times a document is copied, the more times... There's going to be mistakes. So we want to we want to get the copy that's closest to the original. It's kind of like the telephone game, right? You might you might have played when you were young. So if I start, start in the back with Evan and I whisper a sentence to him and then he passes it on to Paul, and Paul passes on. And by the time it gets up to the front of the room, that sentence is going to be different, especially as kids, you know, they like to change it purposely. But but think about that times a hundred, right? If you had a hundred people going through this. By the end of the time, even if they were purposely trying to do it, there are sometimes we miss here, or we didn't get all of it, or we didn't know, we couldn't remember how to restate it in the same exact way, so we change a little bit, and by the end, it's different. And I think something similar happens when we make handwritten copies. So let's take this handout right here, and suppose I gave this handout to Jonathan, and I said, Jonathan, copy this down by hand. Every single word that's in this handout copy it all down, and then you take your copy and you pass it on to Bill, and then he's going to make a copy of his own off of yours, and we pass it all the way around the room, how many errors do you think there would be by the end? I mean, we probably could have an idea of what's trying to be said. So, again, they are not going to be huge errors. Like, it's going to change from, you know, what's what was trying to be said to something completely different, but there are probably going to be a few errors, right, by the time we get to the end of the room. and And... What we're talking about here is 200 words compared to 30,000 words, right? And so, the farther you get away from the original, no matter how many copies that you have, no matter how many manuscripts that you have, right? You get to the 12th century and say, "Wait a second, we got all these copies here," but but the farther you get away, the more likely you are to to have intentional and unintentional errors in there. So what we want to do is tr- we want to find our earliest copies that we have of the Scripture, whether they're a small part or a large part, and we want to we um, draw our understanding of what the original was from that. Does that make sense? So first, the older copy is a more reliable sec- copy. The second principle that specialists use to determine the original is that the harder reading is usually correct. Now this gets a little bit more technical but usually when when scholars come to a reading, okay, which one is more difficult to understand? Because what, what scribes would do, the copyists would do, is that they would often look at the harder reading and say, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would Jesus say it that way? It would make more sense if we did this. And so what they'll do is... They'll, remember, the purpose of their copying was not to, to change it. Uh, they certainly wanted to get the closest to the original as possible, but they're also making evaluations. And wait a second, I got two manuscripts here. One says one thing and one says the other. This one makes more sense, so let's use that one. And so what scholars um, do is that they look at the, the harder reason, reading is usually the correct one because um, you can't explain why someone would would do something like that. Um, so there's a lot more that goes into that, but, but what you're going to find too is that the older manuscripts often had the harder readings. Um, that is they they don't make as much sense to our common understanding and um so the the scribe's goal was was to get into the hands as many people as possible early on it was it was get into the hands of the the church as a whole but later on it was to get into the hands of every single person you know as many copies as possible we wanted to make sure that everybody has a copy of the scriptures so they're working hard and they're trying to get something that makes sense and that is consistent with what they understand, but, but you can see how there potentially could be mistakes. All right, any questions on any of that? All right, let's talk about how they group them into families. And again, this this helps us to understand where they are in the big scheme of things. Um, sometimes people even today especially you know we got just tens of thousands of manuscripts and so so how do you group them to say you know we're not going to look through every single one so how do you what they would do is they a lot of the similar readings remember how i said there's some different readings and some of them so a lot the ones with the similar readings and obviously written on the same kinds of documents will group them into all one category um they, they would group them by age so what kind of documents are they written on? How were they written and so on? Then they would group them by region of origin. So was, did, where do these manuscripts come from? Do they come from England? Do they come from Egypt? Where do they come from? And then some people base the reliability on, on the origin. Uh, so, so that is what I was talking about earlier, that the, the types of readings that are in each one. Based on that, we can say this is an Alexandrian family. This is a Byzantine family of documents. And then they can say, this is the type of reading that would come from that sort of... So almost like a tree. You know, you have the originals, and you have all these different readings. And then if you find a document later, you say, oh, that sounds a lot like what it's saying here in the Byzantine family. So let me just um, kind of help calm the fears here of, of some of the, the mistakes or the differences that were in some of these copies, because I don't want you to go away from here thinking, well, great... You know, we have Bibles that are based on um, based on manuscripts that had they they were just full of errors. I mean, frankly, they weren't full of errors. Again, they were about. Here's what um, Fenton John Anthony Hort wrote in his introduction to the New Testament that he believed the of the famous Westcott and Hort. Fenton Hort said, um, the the differences between these two families, the Alexandrian and the Majority Text are about one-sixtieth of the whole New Testament, and that most of these differences are of trivial importance. So whether it's Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, right? Same meaning, same two words, but just in different order. So he would say they're of triv- trivial importance so that the actual difference of words in these manuscripts make up one one-thousandth of the New Testament. So that's one-tenth of one percent. Um of all of these differences, so when he's looking at the Alexandrian fi- family of of writings, which are more in the earlier centuries, and the and the majority text, which is in the later centuries, saying there's really not that much of a difference. It's like one sixtieth overall, but really of something of critical importance is only one tenth of one percent. Now I don't want you, I don't want you to hear me say that there is any triviality in Scripture. We certainly want to have. Every word that God spoke was critical. We want to know what is, it is the truth, what is exactly the words that were in the autographs as best as we can. Um, that's why you have the warning in Revelation 22, 19, right? That we no one can add or take away from this book. Um, for um, those who do, will will be judged for it. But just because we have... One translation that says Christ Jesus and another translation that says Jesus Christ doesn't mean that we're we're changing the original meaning, right? That's mainly what we're trying to get at. So let me show you an example of one of these differences in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. This one here is a little bit more significant than than the ones where, you know, they have all the words, but they're in a different order. This one actually... In some translations, some of our English translations, it actually doesn't have the words that likely were in the original. In 1885, Spurgeon preached on four words that were not even in the King James Bible. Now, you need to know that that Spurgeon preached from the King James Bible. So he gets up there on a Sunday morning, and he says, I'm going to preach on four words that are not in this Bible, in this English translation. And here they are. And I'm reading from a New American Standard, so if you're reading from a King James, um, you won't have these words, but but that's why I want you to see the difference. Verse 1, 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. And then here are the four words. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it does does did not know Him. So the KJV followed the majority text of manuscripts that read that we should be called the sons of God. It didn't have those last four words. But the revised version, which follows the Alexandrian text, reads that we should be called the sons of God, and such we are. Spurgeon had done some research. He didn't just come up with these words. Okay, he didn't say, well, you know what? This would be really helpful. if We added some more things to it. No. He actually looked at the the background to his King James Bible to see if those things were accurate. And he looked at the Greek manuscripts that were available to him, and he realized that those four words were authentic. They were part of the original, and they should have been included in the King James Bible. And here's what he said in that sermon. That the addition is correct, I do not have the slightest doubt. Those authorities upon which we depend, those manuscripts which are best worthy of notice, have these four words. And they are to be found also in the Latin Vulgate, the Alexandrian family of texts, and several other versions. And he goes on to say, they ought, never have to be, they ought never to have dropped out. In the judgment of the most learned, and those best to be relied on, these are the veritable or true words of inspiration. And then he went on to preach the entire sermon on these four words, and such we are. That were not even found in the Bible that his congregation was using in the church. So, so again, it doesn't affect whether a person goes to heaven or hell. You know whether they they um, know if these words are in there or not. But it does affect what was part of the original, and it helps us to see that that there is a lot of work that goes behind these English translations. So, here's how you can be sure that 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 what you have before you is is valuable and I'll, let me let me get to that in just a second just review for for before i get there okay we have two fundamentally different text families of which our english translations were made okay so we have the majority text which are the later manuscripts in the 12th century and and 10th 10th century and beyond and then you have the alexandrian text which comes much earlier the some of the earlier centuries closer to the original and um based on that we all of our english translations are are written are translated from those two family t- types okay but the great thing is that even if a person has a king james bible they can follow along with any of the differences that that you might see in the in the new american standards and, and again that's because these errors only make up 1% of the New Testament. Probably more like one-tenth of one percent. That's why when someone reads up, you know, in in the service from a New American Standard or from a King James, that we can get the same idea. We're reading along with the same text. We can see where they're going with it, right? Because, really, there's there's not much difference between the two, and so we can be confident in both of these translations. I think they're both good translations, by the way. I'm, I'm not teaching this in order to condemn one translation over another. Um, in fact, uh, to the extent that our translations effectively communicate what was in the original, they are the true Word of God. And the point is, is that, that the copy of the Bible that you hold in front of you can be relied upon as God's Word because the Scriptures have been preserved in not just the autograph. We don't just have one autograph where we can just go and, okay, let's go and and, and make a copy from that. We have the original is actually preserved in the multitude of manuscripts that we have so that scholars can actually work their way back now you might not think that that's actually a valuable way to preserve the scriptures but but let me try to illustrate that suppose that a person had been in a coma and they they weren't and after 30 years they woke up and began asking questions about different things and you had to explain to them just some basic things about human life and you told them that every human that exists and that ever has existed, and that ever will exist, is made in the image of God. Right? And you know that because of um, just observation, but you also know that obviously from the scriptures. And they might say, "Well, how can you say that? There's so much different in each, it, so much difference in each person. How can you say that everyone is made in the image of God? That every single one has uh, is a human being." And and what the way you might respond to that person is, well, God's image has been preserved in all human beings, so let me show you. And then you line up hundreds of different people, hundreds of diverse kinds of people. They all look different. Some are tall, some are short, some are skinny, some are fat, some are dark-complected, some are lighter. They all may speak different languages. And and you put them all before that person and say, what can you say that is true about all these people? And they would say, well, they all have noses, right? They all have two eyes and two ears and they all use their mouth to speak. And so, yes, we have a diversity. Even if you don't have the original Adam, you can say that in the diversity of human beings that live today, they actually make up What is preserved in each one of us is our humanness, right? We're not dogs, okay? The hundred people that you got lined up there, they're not birds. It's clear that they're distinct in that way. There is humanness that is preserved in it. And so what I've done is I've taken time to show differences in the manuscripts and in the translations that we regularly use, but the conclusion that you should get from this is not that the Bible is not God's Word. Just like... These people who look different than us are not humans. No, the Bible that you have in front of you is God's Word. And despite the differences, what you can be sure about is that the Bible, the translation of the Bible that you have in front of you contains divineness. It does not lose its divineness. In the multitude of the manuscripts and the translations that we have, we can know that the actual Word of God. Now, does that mean that every single translation of the Bible is a faithful translation? Obviously not. Okay? That's why I say only to the extent that the translation mimics the original do we have the faithful Word of God. But what we can be sure about is that we have in our hands the true and living Word of God. It's divinely originated and providentially preserved for us. So it can be relied upon to the extent that it reflects the original, so there will be times when we when we have to study the manuscripts, like Spurgeon did, and I often bring that up when there's a when there 's a huge difference in the text and um, i don 't have time to go through this example, but first John five seven is another example where there 's a difference between the majority text manuscripts and the Alexandrian text and when I preached through first John five um, I guess it's about seven years ago now um, I explained that difference and if I had time I would do that again. But if you'd like to listen to that I think it's online. Um if not I should be able to find a, an audio copy of that for you. Um so you kind of understand that there's there are some things in the text when when we have to go back a little bit further there are English translations that differ from one another so which one is, is the correct one. We just have to make make a decision based the uh, the best we can tell from the the understanding that we have. Let me show you this chart on the back and see if you have any questions. All right, this is on the chart last time also, but this is how God communicates truth to His children. This is why we can be sure that what we have is is from God. Okay, first, it begins with a thought in the mind of God. Um, then God gives a message to some human beings. That's revelation. That's God revealing Himself to us. So He... He gives a message, and the thoughts of God are composed by a human author without error in an original manuscript, or it's probably better worded, an original autograph, inspiration. That's where the Holy Spirit moves the men along so that their words are actually the words of God. Then those are collected, the collection of 66 books in the Bible, identified as such in Carthage in 397. That's referred to as the canon. This is how we know which books should be included in our Bible. Then those are obviously in the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic, but then they have to be copied. So the Bible is copied by scribes until the printing press in 1456, and that's where we get the manuscripts. And then after that, we have these modern versions and translations, King James, New American Standard, so on. So now we have an English copy of the text, an English translation of the text, How does it actually come to communicate to us? Well, a a thought in the mind of the believer is what the Holy Spirit uses to to convince us that this is true. That's illumination. And then a changed life. We are changed through observation, interpretation, application. That's what we're going to get into over the next uh, eight weeks. Um, That's just the basic. Let's see see what God is saying in here. What does God mean in here? And now how do we apply that to ourselves? Okay, that's the basic three components of taking God's Word and and applying it to ourselves. That's observation, interpretation, application. And then to um, communication to others, then back to the Bible to involve others in the process. So we take this message, the same thing that has been passed down from Paul has been given to Timothy, and then to, to faithful men who are able to teach others also. And then it goes back through the process. As they come to Christ, then they are illumined by the truth of the Scripture. The Holy Spirit works through them to help them to see the value and the truth of the Scripture, and it kind of just keeps going around in a circle. That's how God communicates to His people. From His mind, to the autographs, through the process of inspiration, uh, through the canon, through illumination by the Holy Spirit, and then, and then um, we're able to apply it to our lives. All right, any questions? I know that was a little bit academic, but but what you're going to find is actually those conversations are going on, and you're probably going to run into people who are very adamant on one side of this argument or the other. And what I think we can do is all agree that, that no matter which translation that we have, the New American Standard, King James, NIV, that, that we have a faithful representation. Um, based on the best manuscripts that they had available at their time, we have a faithful representation of God's Word. And so we can we can be sure that it's good and helpful and necessary Jonathan right so it would be in we are but that doesn't make sense in the English language so then it's so in uh, right and that's what you're going yeah, in the New American Standard, they try to do as best they can a word for word translation of the manuscripts that they had, the best ones that they had. And so what you're going to find in there is they put italics to the words that they had to add to clarify because there really is no way that you can take one language and word for word do a translation. It's just impossible. There, it doesn't work that way. There's a semantic range for each word. And, um, all right, well, I need to go. Um, so let's pray did you have another oh okay let's pray We'll be dismissed Lord thank you for your word thank you that you have um, preserved it for us through your providential work and that you've used faithful scribes throughout the years to to be able to make copies and now um, um, scholars who are able to look at the text and evaluate what is the best um, the best reading and we pray that you'd help us to be confident in the word that we have before us and to to, to see it as Your Word and to take it as truth and to respond to it uh, as You desire. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.